This morning, as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning to look at 1 Peter, and you'll find that in the Church Bibles on page 1217, or in the larger print Bibles, 1886. Just give you a little bit of an introduction to this letter. It is a letter. It's written by Peter from Rome. We're given that detail later on in the letter, towards the end. He actually says he's writing from Babylon. But in line with the rest of the New Testament, he's saying Rome is the new Babylon. The new center of worldly power. That's where the letter's coming from. When it comes to the destination of this letter, we'll see in a few moments, it's not written to Christians in just one particular city. It's intended for circulation across a pretty wide area, roughly equivalent to the northern part of modern Turkey. That's an area of over 300,000 square miles. So in this letter, Peter doesn't deal with specific situations in a particular church. But he assumes all the readers of this letter will have one thing in common. They are Christians who either are or will go through suffering. This is a short letter, but it uses the word suffer more than any other New Testament book. And primarily, these Christians are suffering or they will suffer because of their faith in Jesus. In greater or lesser ways, life is difficult because they're Christians. Peter writes to encourage these people. This letter has been called the Epistle of Hope. Now Peter does have things to say about how to live as Christians, but the emphasis of this letter is encouragement. He doesn't rebuke these people. He doesn't batter them. He wants them to be filled with hope and confidence. Not in themselves, but in their God. And we'll see this morning, one of the main ways Peter does that is by reminding these Christians of their special status. He wants them to recognize the identity they have. They are God's chosen people. And because of that, they can live lives of confident hope. Whatever anyone else thinks of them, however anyone else treats them, whatever might be happening to them, they are precious to God. They are the treasured possession of the Lord of the universe. And if you're a Christian, that is true of you as well. You have a special status. You're one of God's people. Whatever else might define you, the very core of your identity is the fact that you are special to God. When you and I grasp that, it cannot help but affect the way we live. So if you're a Christian, this letter is here to lead you into the significance of your special status. But what if you're not a Christian? Does this letter have anything for you? What should you expect from this letter? Expect this letter to show you what you're missing. I don't say that unkindly. I mean that in a good way. 
If you're not a Christian, you're probably very used to hearing about your need for Jesus. How you need to repent and give your life to him. But this letter gives you another angle. I think it gives you a compelling reason to give your life to Jesus. It shows you the glory of being a Christian. I said earlier, the word suffer occurs more times in this letter than in any other New Testament book. But the word glory appears almost as many times. There is a cost to following Jesus, but the rewards are priceless. So if you're not a Christian, why not do this? Ask God to use this letter to make you envious of what Christians have. As we study this, ask him to give you a desire to have this for yourself. That's all I'm going to say by way of introduction. Let's read the first part of this letter. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is God's word. This is a letter to a chosen people. And in these verses, we're given the foundations 
of what it means to be a chosen people. These verses don't tell us to do anything. They tell us who we are as Christians. Peter gives us four realities of our situation. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we are special to God and strangers to this world. Paul begins by reminding us he's not speaking off his own bat here. These are not Peter's bright ideas. In verse 1, he introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ or a messenger of Jesus Christ. This letter comes with the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's addressed to God's elect. Or we could translate that God's chosen people. That's what elect means. Now the statement that certain people are chosen by God is amazing in itself. But it also has a particular history. Throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites were referred to as God's chosen people. They were his elect. But again and again in this letter, Peter takes that Old Testament language about God's special people and he applies it to Christians. Now we have good reason to believe there were probably some people from Israelite backgrounds in these churches. But predominantly, the people receiving this letter come from Gentile backgrounds. They're not Israelites. We'll see evidence of that as we go through the letter. Peter says things about their previous lifestyle that just would not apply to people from Jewish backgrounds. And that means the people of God are no longer limited to one nationality or background. What counts is not your passport. It's whether or not you give your allegiance to Jesus as your Savior and Lord. God's people today are drawn from all people. And then Peter wants these Christians to realize, yes, you have made a decision to follow Jesus. But, Peter says, the first decision was God's. Look at verse 2. God's elect are those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It makes a huge difference to our confidence to know that ultimately we have been chosen rather than us doing the choosing. Let me try to illustrate that for you. When I was a teenager, I wanted to play football. So I chose a team and I phoned up the manager. I asked if I could train with them and he said, okay. But when I turned up to training, I realized I was surrounded by other players who had been chosen for the team. They had been scouted. And those players had a confidence that I simply didn't have. A confidence that I never ended up having. Why? Because they knew they were wanted. They hadn't barged their way in. They hadn't invited themselves in. They got a call from the manager. I was different. The manager got a call from me. I persuaded him to let me in, and I was always aware of that. The others 
displayed with a freedom and assurance that came from being chosen. And as Christians, when we realize I'm here because I'm chosen, that gives us a deep confidence as well. To know we're not in God's family because we pleaded with him, we twisted his arm, and he agreed to put up with us. We are in because he gave us the call. We're in because he wants us. We're special to him in a way we'll never fully understand. But the Bible assures us it's true. It was God who took the initiative and chose us. Now my illustration breaks down a bit. It breaks down because those lads I played football with deserved to be chosen. They were chosen because they were very good. The Bible says God chose us before we were even born. Before we could have done anything to deserve his love. So as Christians, our confidence doesn't come from any achievement of our own. If it did, we would be unbearably proud. True Christian confidence is always an amazed confidence. That God chose us, even though we often feel more like a liability to the team than an asset. But the beauty of it is, it doesn't matter what we think. He gave us the call. He wants us. If you and I take time to consider that reality, it can be a source of deep peace and assurance for us. It can deliver us from both ugly pride, thinking we earned it, and also it can deliver us from dark despair when we realize we could never earn it. We are special to God. We don't know why, but we are. The Bible insists on it. And notice how it's not just God the Father who's behind all this. All three members of the Trinity are in on it. Look again at verse 2. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. One commentator sums it up like this. The Father elects a people for salvation. The Son accomplishes that salvation and the Spirit applies that salvation to all who believe the gospel. As the letter goes on, people, uh, Peter will explain how Jesus accomplished our salvation. He died in our place. Here, Peter says we are sprinkled with his blood. That is Old Testament language. In the book of Exodus, when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, he designated them as his treasured possession. That's what he called them. And that specialness was then demonstrated in a covenant ceremony. You can read about it later in Exodus chapter 24. The people at that ceremony were sprinkled with blood. That was God's seal on the covenant. It was the sign that he accepted them. That he was committing himself to them. 
And they committed then to live as his special people. And here Peter says, in a similar way, Jesus' blood confirmed our acceptance with God. When we come and place ourselves under Jesus' blood, our sin and guilt are covered. The Father elects a people for salvation, the Son accomplishes that salvation, and the Spirit applies that salvation. The Spirit works in us to make us more like Jesus. As Christians, we are special to God. Father, Son, and Spirit work together not only to give us the call, they're also committed to seeing through what they started in us. From that initial choice right through to final glorification. And that final glorification is what Peter is going to deal with next. But before we move on to that, notice a word that we skipped over in verse 1. Right after telling us we are elect, Peter immediately says we are also exiles. Now those two words don't seem to sit very well together. They kind of jar with one another. Because the word elect points to privilege, high status. The word exile points to disadvantage, low status. An exile is a temporary resident in a foreign place. An exile doesn't really belong. They're not really at home. And Peter wants us to see both of those titles apply to us. When it comes to God, we are elect, we're privileged, we have high status. But when it comes to this world and its rebellion against God, we are exiles. We don't quite belong. We don't have high status. We may even find ourselves disadvantaged in certain ways. And it's important to see we are exiles in this world because we're God's elect. Before we came to Christ, this world did feel like home to us. It's our status as God's people that makes us strangers in this world. And the more we live in the reality of our election, the more we're going to feel like exiles. The more this world is going to treat us like strangers. We just don't fit in with what they're living for. The things they're all chasing after, those are not the things we're going after. So if you're a Christian and you're concerned and worried about fitting in with this world, you need to let that go. The only way to seem normal in this world is to abandon the Christian life. Any genuine attempt to live as a Christian will make us stand out like sore thumbs. Better just to accept that from the beginning. Now that doesn't mean we have to dress ourselves in strange ways. It doesn't mean we have to talk in strange ways. We'll be strange enough simply by living out our identity as God's chosen people. And if our hearts begin to sink 
at the thought of being strangers in this world, then we need to spend time focusing on the first part of the reality. The fact that we are not strangers to God. We're special to him. And Peter says, we are guaranteed a glorious future. Look in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We've already had one description of what happens when we come to Jesus. We are sprinkled with his blood, purified from the guilt of sin. Well, here's another truth about those who come to Jesus. We are given new birth into a living hope. In the ancient world, a person's birth determined their prospects in life. If your dad was a shepherd, the chances were pretty high that would be your future as well. It was very unlikely you'd grow up to be a provincial governor if your dad was a shepherd or a carpenter. Now, we might not have that in quite the same way today. We have a lot more options open to us. Probably very few of us here are doing today what our parents did. But it's still true, if your parents were well off, your future is likely to be similar. And here Peter says, as God's people, you can forget about the circumstances of your physical birth. That is not what determines your prospects for the future. What matters is your new birth as a child of God. Your hope for the future comes from that. And your prospects could not be greater. Jesus' resurrection from the dead has won you, verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Before the summer, we worked our way through the books of First and Second Kings. And long before the events recorded in those books, the land of Canaan had been given to the Israelites as an inheritance from God. When God brought them out of Egypt, that is how he described the land in front of them. It was their promised inheritance. It was a fruitful place. It was a place for them to flourish. But as we followed the story in Kings, we saw that inheritance being spoiled because of Israel's sin. And finally, we saw them losing their inheritance. It was torn away from them by their enemies. As Christians, we too have an inheritance. The Bible describes it as a new heaven and earth. An eternal home where God and his people are together. In other places, it's called the New Jerusalem. We sang earlier, Zion City. It's another name for the New Jerusalem. But here Peter says, our inheritance is very different from the inheritance of Old Testament Israel. Because our inheritance can never 
perish, spoil, or fade. It can never be tarnished or spoiled by sin, because nothing sinful will ever enter it. It can never perish, because no enemy can overthrow it, and death will have no place in it. Its blessings will never fade, because they're renewed by God himself. Why is our inheritance so secure? Because it's kept in heaven for us. It's in the most secure place in the universe. And the end of the Bible describes a future day when heaven will come down to a renewed earth. God and his people will be together forever. And until that day, nothing and no one can mess with our inheritance. Nothing can shake it. No one can steal it from us. It's kept for us by God himself. But in the meantime, what about us? We might not worry about God messing things up, but what about us? Can't we mess it up and fail to arrive at our inheritance? No. Verse 5 says, Through faith... We are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's another way of talking about our inheritance. In the new heaven and earth, we'll enjoy the full experience of our salvation. And until we arrive there, we are shielded by God's power. Maybe a better translation would be, we are guarded by God's power. Because the sense is not just that God protects us like a shield, it's that he actively watches over us like a guard or a guardian. So his protection is always timely, it's always appropriate. It is God's power that will get us safely home. Our part is to trust him and keep looking to him as our protector and provider. As God's chosen people, we are special to God. We're guaranteed a glorious future. And we are able to experience joy in the present. Look at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We know from verses 3 to 5 there's joy ahead of us. But here, Peter says, there can be joy now as well. And that joy can be in spite of grief that comes to us through all kinds of trials. Peter doesn't narrow it down here. Grief can include the grief we experience when we lose a loved one, but it can refer to other pain and suffering too. What Peter says is wide enough to cover minor grief, it comes from minor trials and to cover major grief that comes from very significant trials. Whatever the extent of the trial, whatever the intensity of the grief, Peter says the child of God can experience joy in the midst of it. Now some commentators just cannot get their heads around this verse. How can anyone rejoice in the midst of grief. 
And so they wonder, maybe Peter means you will rejoice when the trial is over. But that is not what Peter says. He says there can be joy even before the trial is over. He doesn't say it's automatic, but there can be joy. And he gives us several reasons why. Here in verse 6, he says, in all this you greatly rejoice. All this is referring back to verses 3 to 5. The verse is about our future inheritance. In verse 6, Peter says, when you suffer grief, it's still possible to experience joy by looking forward to your future inheritance. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he said he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now that sounds like a contradiction if ever there was one. But Paul's experience was that when we have our eyes set on our future glorious inheritance, we are able to rejoice. Even while we're going through sorrow. and Feeling that sorrow. The sorrow is there. Maybe it's almost threatening to overwhelm us. But deeper down than the sorrow, there is a joy that no sorrow can completely snuff out for God's people. It's the joy of knowing our Father is going to one day present us with an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fail. And that he's guarding that inheritance with his own power until we get there. So we are able to experience joy in the present by looking beyond the present. Again, it's not automatic. I have no right at all to stand here and give you some easy answer to your sorrows. But the Bible promises we can experience a degree of rejoicing as we lift our gaze above those sorrows to focus on the glory ahead of us. One writer says, the outline of our inheritance comes into sharper focus when we look at it with tears in our eyes. The outline of our inheritance comes into sharper focus when we look at it with tears in our eyes. Maybe our inheritance means more. Maybe it's more precious to us when we look up to it from the midst of pain and sorrow. Peter goes on to say we're able to experience joy in the present by seeing that our faith is real. That's the point in verse 7. And the verse is easier to understand if we read it leaving out the bit about gold in the middle, the bit between the dashes. So it would read, these verses, or these trials, sorry, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, if you belong to God's chosen people, then trials are never pointless. They bring to light the reality of our faith. Just like fire reveals the purity of precious metal. 
That's the point of the bit in the middle of the verse, the comparison with gold. I remember hearing a pastor talk about his experience of very severe illness. He'd been through chemotherapy, and although at the time of the interview he was in a period of recovery, he knew it was very, very likely his cancer would return. And the interviewer asked him what the experience was like. And I'm sure that pastor could have said lots of things. But what he did say was that in the past, he'd always wondered about the genuineness of his faith. How deep did it really go? Now he knew, I'm a pastor, I teach God's word, that's my job, but how are my convictions about it? How strong are they? But he said, as he went through that horrible experience of illness, knowing he might not come out the other side of it, he said, I realized, I do believe what God says. I really do believe his promises. His word really is enough for me. For that Christian man, his testimony was that going through suffering tested and proved the genuineness of his faith. It showed it to him. I can only imagine how much he hated the illness and what it did to him. But in the midst of that, he experienced a kind of joy as he discovered how precious God's promises really were to him. He'd never really known that before. And Peter says we are able to experience joy in the present because we have Jesus. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We've seen that joy can come from looking forward. It can come from seeing the genuineness of our faith. And it also comes from knowing Jesus is with us. We're not yet standing in his presence, but he truly is with us. His spirit lives in us. Later in this letter, Peter will say, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here he says, although you have not seen him, you love him. That's the language of relationship. Our Savior will not only bring us through our trials, he is with us in the thick of them. It's not just our future that's glorious, we have glorious privileges now. We can pour out our hearts now to the lover of our souls in complete confidence that he hears us. We can hear him speaking comfort and assurance to us through his word as it comes alive to us. So belonging to God's chosen people then is not all about future glory. We have significant blessings and privileges now. Maybe we underestimate those privileges when our lives are going well. But when we're knocked off our feet by trials, 
maybe we begin to see the true value of Jesus' presence with us. When we were on our way home from the US a week ago, we had a layover between flights in Chicago airport. We had about seven hours there. So we visited a friend who lives near the airport. We'd known her and her husband during our time living in Chicago. They were both highly active people. They ran marathons together. They were involved in, in fact, so many things, it made me a bit dizzy. After we moved here, they had two children about the same time that Megan and I did. But about a year and a half ago, this lady was hit with a mystery illness. Her body simply rejected anything she put into it. She could get no nutrition at all from her food. And in the short term, the only solution was to hook her up to a machine for 12 hours every day. She had no energy to do anything. Now, by the time we saw her last week, things had gotten marginally better for her. She's no longer on a machine for 12 hours a day. With treatment, her body can get a little bit of benefit from her food. But when she eats anything, it always results in several hours of real intense pain for her. And so, she only eats one meal a day. She eats it just before she goes to bed so that she can get her suffering over with during the night while her husband and her kids are sleeping. And then she can be available for a few hours the next morning when the pain has passed. So she can try to be a wife and a mom for at least a little bit of the day. That is her existence, and she explained to us, the doctors have told us, that is unlikely ever to change. That's a hard thing to hear at the age of 41. And I tell you all that because of what she said to us about her faith. She said this whole experience has taught her the only thing she can truly count on in this life is the presence of God. Health, that's not guaranteed. Healing, that's not guaranteed. Getting to pursue the career you love, getting to do all the things you plan to do, none of that is guaranteed. But we are guaranteed the presence of Jesus. He will be with us even in the worst trial. And the case of our friend in Chicago, that is how she was able to meet us with a smile on her face. Last of all in this passage, as God's chosen people, we are blessed by monumental grace. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. 
It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. As Christians, sometimes we throw around the word grace like it's a normal thing. Like all the things we've just been talking about this morning are obvious things. Of course we're special to God. Of course we have a glorious inheritance. Of course we have Jesus with us. We can get so used to hearing those truths and singing about them, we forget how monumental they are. How awesome and significant all this is. That's what Peter wants to impress on us in these last verses. He says the Old Testament prophets were given a message about what God was going to do in the future. Sending a Messiah who would suffer and through his suffering would bring about glorious things. Those old prophets knew they were dealing with awesome realities. Monumental things. They'd have given their right arm to know more about it all. How it would all come about. How God would achieve it. And Peter says, even today, angels are excited about these things. They're falling over themselves to see how God is going to bring it all to a glorious climax. And Peter is telling us, these are the things God has done and is doing for you. His chosen people. The things you and I sometimes find ourselves yawning about, those are the things that kept the prophets up at night with anticipation and excitement. These are the things angels are intensely interested in. The grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ is monumental. The grace still ahead of us is awe-inspiring. If we've never realized that, let's allow it to sink in. If we've forgotten this, let's remember it. As God's chosen people, we have so much. And so, if we ever get tired of being strangers in this world, at those times when we feel a longing to just fit in and belong, wouldn't that be so much more comfortable? When we start feeling like that, let's come back to these foundations. Let's remember the glory of our situation. We are men and women who are special to God. We're guaranteed a glorious future. And we have a Savior who walks with us all the way. Let's respond to God's word with the song we learned earlier. Christ is mine forevermore.